Have you ever been stuck in limbo? Could be a bureaucratic limbo. Could be a medical limbo. I guess in some ways we've all been stuck in some kind of medical-induced limbo at some point, thanks to the pandemic, which I can't believe I'm still bringing up on the show. But there you go. I think the sentiment, I can't believe, insert thing here. But there you go. Actually, sums up a lot of the book that we're covering in this episode. That book is Far Away, Yuan Fang by Luo Yijun. Although, if you are not familiar with how to pronounce Taiwanese Chinese names from romanization, you might be seeing it as Luo Yijun. But be aware, it's not. It's Luo Yijun. So, before we get on to my conversation about that book with our episode's guest Jenna Tang, we're going to do. The translated Chinese fiction news, the Trucho Fig news. I've got five items this time, so as per usual, I'm going to say now that I'll try and shoot through them. And what's inevitably going to happen is that I'll take too long to do that. So anyway, here goes. The first news item. It's Paul French. He's back on the BBC Radio, and I just listened to this episode just before recording this intro, so perhaps I'll have a bit to say. He's exploring what the episode description of this radio show describes as a unique moment in British-Chinese solidarity between 1937 and 1945. Uh, he's he's looking at a, a area of London, a particular postcode that was home to several, I guess, families or couples of Chinese intellectuals. During the war years, and these would be the war years as we think of them from like a Chinese perspective. So starting with the Japanese invasion of China, not、uh, the German invasion of Poland. So yeah, I, what can I say? It's just a fantastic listen. It's really interesting, and there's some fantastic archive audio and text that Paul has prepared and sort of gathered for the show. Just wonderful surprise. I'm sure very few of you lovely people are knowledgeable enough to know <laughs> the full story that Paul tells in this episode with the help from some academics and the archives. So yeah, just fantastic listen. Do check it out. Link is in the show notes. This one stays up for a full year or more online. So if you're listening well into the future, it may be gone. But if you're listening right now in 2022, early February. Well, you've got a whole year to catch this one. Okay, next news item. Actually, these—I'll I'll do two news items at once here. They're both about Sinoist books, who just keep getting into my my terrific news again and again. But they deserve it. You'll you'll soon see why. So,、um, the first thing that they've done is that their book Longevity Park by Joe Dashin, or at least their translation of Joe Dashin's book, has bagged a spot in the Dublin Dublin Literary Award run list.、Uh, run list. Long list. It's it's in there with loads of interesting books from all sorts of writers, shall we say? So follow the link, have a look at all of them, and you will see Longevity Park in there. It's an interesting story. I had a role in 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 publishing this one, I guess. I I did some work on it. So、um, what can I say? You really should check it out, just for that reason alone, of course.、Uh, now next. Sinoist Books has announced a lineup of four new titles that are on the way. This is the first of、uh, what's going to be a theme in this terrific news.、Uh, the link in the show notes points to a tweet, which has、um, the Chinese editions of the four books that they're going to be、um, working on bringing out. So they are "A Cherry on a Pomegranate Tree" by Li R, and that's that's really exciting to see they're doing Li R. "Graft" by Li Peifu, "Leading Leading Wave" by Shu Huizhong. Almost said Huizhong there, but it's not. It's Huizhong and set dressing by Chen Yan or Chen Yan. I I won't I won't 
try and espouse lots of things about these books, only that it's really cool that they've got Lee R. It's Dave Hasem, I believe, that'll be translating that Lee R book, so particularly particularly interested to see where that goes. Okay, next piece of news. I'm linking to a tweet thread on this one. It's about the Mandarin language podcast Loud Murmurs. It has gone dark for reasons that are unspecified beyond, in quotes, personal reasons. Um, so it was a it was a a talk show looking at um, sort of pop culture news, both related to like the U.S. and China, um, by four Chinese young women living in the states. And the fact that they've gone dark so quietly, so like accounts deleted, the Patreon, the RSS feed shut down, has led some people to speculate that maybe their family back home were you know subtly or not subtly threatened, and that's that they were sort of made to shut down the show because they crossed who knows what line. That's speculation. That's not confirmed. I think what I can confirm, or rather what you can verify yourself, is that the hosts of the show themselves are still uh, present and active online. They're just not talking about the show anymore. It's It's been sort of nullified very quickly. The RSSV did stay up for about a week, I think, after this going dark, but it's it's now gone, I believe. So yeah. Just, just thought I'd highlight that. You shouldn't say nothing when these things happen, even if you don't know why they happen. Okay, next one. God knows how I'll summarize this. It is a link to yet another tweet. It's from the translator Jennifer Feely, and it's from the poet Shishi, who I think is her main, the main focus of her work. And it's a translation of a concrete poem. Now, I've done poor preparation here because I haven't, I haven't reminded myself what the definition of a concrete poem is. So let me do that right now. So a concrete poem, concrete poetry is poetry, and I'm reading off because just my Google search result here, is poetry in which the poet's intent is conveyed by the graphic pattern of letters, words, or symbols. Right, there we go. So the original Chinese, it's uh, it repeats a few, several characters over and over and over. Um, I guess it suppose it, it looks like a thicket of green grass as well. So um, it's, it's a challenging one because this works, you would think, very differently between Chinese and English. But Jennifer Feely has given it a shot. I guess I can actually try and read you the English of this poem. Yeah, why not? This won't take too long. (laughs) So it goes like this. A striped tiger in a thicket of green grass. Fur fur pine. Pest cypress. Parasol butterfly. Buzz. Elm. Palowina. Brush brush bud. Brush dove. Brush wood. Brush 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 brush. Hiss. Brush brush grass. Brush kite. Brush tree. Brush. Brush wood. Brush poplar. Brush bluff. Cave grove. Brush grass brush flea brush brush bluff a brush a fox brush bird brush i know what line am i on brush 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 bug brush bluff cave cave bluff cave brush bug cave brush wood cave brush bluff ant brush chirp brush wood brush chur cave cave bird cave worm brush wood brush brush bluff ant brush wood Brush tree brush it seep deep grrr brush brush wood brush worm Brush bud brush brush grove brush brush wood brush 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 bud brush brush bird brush bird brush bluff brush sharp cave cave brush. There you go. She hit a tiger in the poem. Maybe you heard it. That was um that was for Chinese New Year, the year of the tiger that she did that. So there you go. I hope none of you have stopped listening and are. I hope none of you are incredibly pissed off at me. Although if you were, I would not blame you. So that is the full extent of the Churchific news. For those of you who aren't, 
really annoyed at me for for reading a concrete poem without its key visual element then i apologize but you'll you'll just have to bear with me cuz you know you're about to hear me interview someone for about 2 hours so i'm not going at, going away but the good news is i will be joined i will be interviewing jenna tang talking about luo yirun's far away so enjoy all right so on the show we have jenna tang Jenna, great to have you on the show. You have actually some previous interaction with the show. You transcribed one of the episodes. So, I don't I don't know if that resulted in me getting your name out there at all, but anyway, you're a friend of the pod, now you're on the show. Fantastic to have you here. Uh, can you tell the listeners a wee bit about yourself? Of course. Hi Angus, and so happy to be on this show. Um I'm Jenna Tang and I'm a literary translator from Spanish and Mandarin into English. And I was Altas 2021 Emerging Translators program mentee, and I'm always interested in talking about Taiwanese literature, especially. And I'm on my way exploring Chinese literature because of political reasons. I never got to read a lot when I was back in Taiwan, and just really happy to be on this show. Awesome, yeah.、Uh, you gave us a little, or us, you gave the listeners a little bit of a clue about what book is our topic for this episode. Because it's from Taiwan, it's Taiwanese lit. I think this is the f- is this the first Taiwanese book I've done since Taiwan season. I I already don't remember, but in any case, it's far away, and I'm I'm going to be very careful here because I have pinyin brain. So I would read this guy's name as Luo Yichen, but that's not quite right. It is Luo Yijun if we're saying it right. Is that correct? Yeah, it's Luo Yijun. Luo Yijun, right? Okay. And our our story is far away,、um, which was published by Columbia University Press, who are I think they're the coolest academic press publishing Chinese fiction. Probably I haven't found a cooler one.、Um, I guess bef- yeah. Before we jump into the book, I'm kind of curious、um, about your work as a translator because you don't just work between Chinese and English; it's Spanish as well.、Um, I don't know. Do you want to tell us a little bit about how you became a translator? That story. Yeah,、um, translation has been part of my life ever since I would say ever since I was born. I was born in a really big family back in Taiwan. My dad has fourteen siblings, and some of them are everywhere across the world. <laughs> and so is my mom's、um, siblings. <laughs> and so my family now is in South Korea, in Canada, in some parts of the United States, and a lot of them are still based in Taiwan. And because of that, I'm always living in multiple languages,、um, mm. especially Chinese, English, and Hakka dialect, and also Taiwanese Hokkien.、Right. And so there's always translation happening in the, within the family, as well as when I went to school, and my my parents later sent me to France and sent me to America for grad school. And so my life is always all about translation, and I'm always shifting around languages. And I remember some friends told me that.、Um, If one learns more than one languages, they start to develop different personalities when they speak different languages, and that's exactly how I feel.、Um, mm. And so, yeah, translation has been a big part of my life, and that is also the way I make it to the U.S.、Um, by making money through translation back in Taiwan. If I'm not being too nosy, what are your span? What makes your Spanish, Chinese, and English personalities different?、Um, I learned Spanish from a relationship. So most of the words, expressions I learned were from my previous partner, and、mm. there are a lot of street terms that I learned, and I didn't start 
learning language from official education. And so there's a lot of slangs that I used that sometimes people are like, how did you, how did you know this term? <laughs> Why did you speak like that? And for English, I started learning since I was a kid, probably when I was three or five years old. And, and I started out with American English. So I've always been speaking like this since I was a kid. And as for Chinese, it's kind of like, to this day, it's kind of like a private language to me. Like when someone knows how to speak Chinese, I feel like they, they already know like 70% of me. Yeah, so whoa, 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 get out of my, get out of my zone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what you were saying about Spanish, that sort of chimes with me, because although my Mandarin is not really that extensive at all, um, a lot of it I practiced on WeChat. Um, that's probably where most of my reading, that's where all of my reading skills <laughs> from Chinese come from, all the character recognitions pretty much from WeChat. So like my knowledge of internet slang from like, 2015 through to 18 PRC China is great. Um, I think it's getting really, really outdated now, but there was a, a, a while where I would say something like, wow, die call or Leo, 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 or I will go die or something. And they're like, uh, some Chinese friends would say, whoa, you know that you must, you must be fluent. And it's like, no, no, I'm just downloading too many sticker sets on, on WeChat. It doesn't mean I speak the language. Yeah, I had another question there about the, the three languages. I know we shouldn't hover on this forever, but Spanish and I guess English, Spanish and Chinese all have something in common. And that's that they're not just a national language in one country. I suppose for Chinese, that's a tricky one because we could battle people online about what makes a country a country. But there's this, the Sinophone world is a thing. The Spanish speaking world is absolutely a thing. There are lots of yeah, there's a whole continent full of different countries that speak Spanish. And then English, we have all the, I guess, all the Anglo countries. So do you feel like you described there the English that you speak is American English? Your Chinese, I guess, is tied to Taiwan. How about your Spanish? Is, do you feel that's got a, ge- a little pin on the map somewhere as well? Yeah, it's deeply Colombian. <laughs> and <laughs> right. at that time, I, was, um, I wasn't sure which... Um, which Spanish I'm going to learn. And from Taiwan, the official education I later had was mainly Spain Spanish. And because most of the teachers come from Spain. And so um, I sort of set up my foundation with um, Destiniano, that's what they call. And later on, because I mainly communicate with my Colombian partner at that time, and I learned a lot of dirty things from him. And we talk a lot with also with his friends and family. And so I also later learned that Colombian Spanish is a more neutral Spanish, not saying that they don't have particular expressions, but more like most of my friends told me that if I speak Colombian Spanish, I'm easily understood by most Latin American population. I could be wrong. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I've been told by some people, I guess, Americans and Chinese friends, maybe more of the Chinese friends, that my accent is very easy to understand. And to me, that wasn't so much about which part of the country of Scotland or the UK that I'm from, but my background, I'm, I'm from the suburbs, um, so I don't have a strong accent. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like I was a, a TEFL teacher in, in, in the PRC for yeah pretty much the whole time I was there uh, in one shape or another. And it was interesting to know which schools or parents or people preferred British or US English. And yeah, it was interesting to hear the arguments for why the version of English spoken in the much smaller, much less influential country might be preferable to some people. 
I wonder if there's a similar thing going on there with Spanish, just because it was the point of origin. We could keep going on here. Um, I should probably move us to the story. Is there anything else you want to get out about about <laughs> Spanish, English, Chinese, or shall we march on? Let's march on. <laughs> Let's march on. Probably the right choice. Um, so I guess we should lay out the premise of the story. So not necessarily the whole plot, and uh, maybe we'll get to that, but just like what this book's about. Um, what I usually do here is I'll I'll have a go at it, and if you feel I've missed anything really egregious, you can um, you can kind of tack it on. So our narrator is a middle-aged Taiwanese man. He seems to be quite similar to the author, and he's recounting, I guess, because it's in past tense, a time in his life when he had to go from his home country, Taiwan, into Jiangxi, I think, province in mainland China, because his dad, who is, I guess, a Taiwanese person who fled the mainland or left the mainland for Taiwan, went back for a holiday, but has had a health crisis and is stranded basically in a hospital. And the mission that our our middle-aged dad um, or son, yeah, he's a son and a father. He's the middle kind of generation in the family, gets sent out to retrieve, um, retrieve his dad. And his main companion along the way, I think quite interestingly, it's not like his wife or his son, it's his, it's his mom. Him and his his mum go to rescue the the I guess the elder patriarch of the family, and for most of the plot, he's just stuck in a, a a mire. It's impossible for him to really make any progress, and there's a lot of kind of I don't know. I suppose you could call it cultural confusion between him, the Taiwanese guy, in inland what seems to be less wealthy, smallish town, or small but kind of backwater China. And I'm trying to remember when this. When this is set, it's not set in the present day. I think it's, is it the 90s? Yeah, I think it was the 90s. And yeah. at the same time, like, I feel like the, the biggest challenge for him was also the dialects that's being spoken by his other part of family, where his, his dad used to live. And that's, there's so much awkwardness between him and his mother with that family and how they like work together to help out his dad. And also there's this kind of permanent awkwardness that exists between them because of all the things that happened in the past oh yeah that's important the 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 patriarch i guess i'll call him the granddad keep things simple the granddad has had a past wife i think in the mainland so our main character's mom is the second wife of this guy and he had children in both marriages so our our narrator is meeting his i think i guess they would be half brothers these half brothers and cousins who are the same they're technically the same generation but they're a lot older and of course they've had quite different lives and they've grown up in a very different context and yeah like you said although they're all technically speaking Chinese they're speaking different dialects that um makes it occur to me there's something I guess I should ask I read the the translated edition of the book because as listeners will know my Chinese is not even close to good enough to be reading the original the originals did you read this book in the original Chinese, or did you read the translation? I actually started out by reading a translation. I've always heard of Luo Yijun, and as much as I wanted to read as many books as possible back in Taiwan, um, I was like many so many other students in Taiwan that were stuck in the educational system, and the endless studying and intensive practicing of you know like textbooks and um, the Chinese literature within the academic system really exhausts us. 
So、mm. we never got to read anything that's outside of the textbook and whatever that's planned in in school. And so I've always heard of Luo Yijun, but I never got a chance to actually read the works until I came to the U.S. and encountered this translation. Right. Um. This is this is totally tangential, but um, in the U.S. If you want to get a a book in in Chinese, do you have a like a go to shop or an online store, or is it a real pain for you? Because this, I I find ways to navigate that in Shanghai. I guess Shanghai was an easy place for me to get English language books, but um, it was an interesting aspect of of living there. But I'm just wondering if you have I don't know if you have experiences like that. Yes, totally. Um, I actually have ways.、Uh, I have both ways.、Mm. To、uh, when I was in Taiwan, I get English books from. Book Depository, which is from UK. Oh yeah. And、um, I was able to purchase a lot of books、um, without having to pay so much shipping fee. And at the same time, when I'm in the US or anywhere else in the world, I order books in Chinese from Bookalai.、Um, oh, it's、wow. books.com.tw, and they actually ship Chinese books, mainly whatever it, that's available,、um, either in simplified Chinese or. Uh, traditional Chinese, they're all available and can be shipped by DHL. And I guess because they have some kind of potential, like existing collaboration with one another, so the shipping fee is not as high as I expected. Nice,、uh, listeners, take note. Out, and I'm gonna leave a mental note for myself here to add these two sites to the show notes. Book Depository.、Um, my contact with that is usually. If you're looking on Amazon at the secondhand options to try and get something cheap, book depository are usually there with the lowest price. So they've been my friend at various points when I need us to stock up on books for cheaps.、Um, keep keeping us going again. I guess we more or less laid out the premise of the story. I guess I can we can talk about how we came across it before I hit record. I told you how I came across this book, but could you tell me and the listeners how did you end up with this one in your hands? Yeah.、Um... I know the translator Jeremy Tiang, and he has been an amazing translator. And before this book was coming out, he talked about、um, the process of translating Luo Yijun's Far Away, and that's when I got to know the book. And at that time, we were actually having a lunch with the Taipei Cultural Center in New York. We talk about this upcoming book after Ji Da Wei's The Membranes. Oh yeah.、Uh, and that's how I got to know the translation of this book.、Um, but again, like I've always heard of. Luo Yijun and his many books that were published in Chinese. Awesome, yeah. I guess、um, we should say thank you to to Jeremy, our fairy godmother,、um, for setting up this episode. I don't think this is a, a trade secret. I asked him if he if he'd like to come on. He said, "I'd love to. I'm awfully busy. Plus, I'm not Taiwanese.、Um, here's someone who's really good and maybe has that ang- that angle." And here we are. So, thank you, Jeremy, if you're listening. I'm I'm sure you are. He told me. He always listens. Listens with the caveat if the book I'm doing is his translation. So he probably is listening. So cheers, Jeremy. Yeah, and a late happy birthday to Jeremy. Oh, happy birthday! One more basic point: first impressions after reading it. I thought at first I might get through this one quickly because it looks kind of smallish, and I thought the plot might interest me. But my feeling was, as I kept going, there's not really much plot at all. It's a lot of it felt like stream of consciousness, and the plot, if there is a plot, it seemed to be intentionally repetitive because he's constantly trying to make moves to get his dad out of the hospital, and that quickly becomes just desperately trying to bribe various players to get his dad comfortable. 
So the character is frustrated a lot of the time. And as a reader, I know I'm being too negative here. Sometimes I felt frustrated. But on the flip side, a lot of the reflections are very deep. A lot of the stuff about family, I found very relatable. A lot of the pictures of small town China, I felt I could relate to to some extent because my first year in China, thrown in in the deep end, um, I was in a small town. Granted, I was there in 2014, 15, not the 90s. I think I would have had a harder time if it was the 90s. But yeah, that was my impression. It's like a nice, very literary style read could have, for me, could have been edited down a bit, but that might have killed the magic. So what what about you? What's your sort of impression? Um, My very first impression is that this book reminds me of a lot of personal essays or novels and stories back in Taiwan that I used to read in Chinese. That's for the what of nostalgia and a lot about it is about the author's parents either a father or mother or both and this book especially brings me back to a lot of memories happening in my family and I think I definitely relate to the fact that some of the plots are a little repetitive mm. but I also try to think if that's kind of nature of life events especially life events like this <laughs> like when there's someone in a family um who is in an older age and who's falling sick and deep, seriously sick. And just at that, at that time, like the entire family kind of plunges into some kind of repetitiveness. Like it's really about sending this person to the hospital, taking care of them. And there's some isolation happening. And then there's a lot of uncertainty hovering in the air and that makes the family, I don't know, like it makes everyone anxious and it makes everyone think of reflect and think about a lot of things and I feel like that's the whole story like the structure of itself really reminds me of just how we feel emotionally about these type of things yeah yeah you're right it's um in some ways it feels more like reality than a than a nicely structured novel designed for entertainment I think that the book got me thinking about I guess the obvious relatable stuff is an an elder an elderly relative um aging and becoming kind of increasingly unwell the book is really not like yeah it doesn't shy away from that at all warts and all it gets quite physical at at points and it doesn't offer i guess it doesn't really offer any sort of false hope or um, promises of a magical happy ending and i don't want to be too depressing or morbid here but i remember this was this has been on my mind in recent years as a little boy um asking my mom like what happens when we die like is it really scary like in the movies do you get blown up or something and she said no it's fine it's just like going to sleep you feel very comfortable and then you just go to sleep and you drift away and then some people think you you go to heaven and I thought oh great that's that's a non-issue now I don't need to worry about that but then of course as an adult you you see what happens in the world and become to me anyway it became apparent that's not that might be true for some people but the reality of like people's final um chapters in life if if old age is what they pass away of old age is not that's kind of the root cause but really your body gradually fails and it could be very undignified or difficult to manage it could be stressful for other people to manage it's not no you know no one promises you a pretty neat tidy picture it's and it, it could be quite protracted and it's a I guess that's a bittersweet thing because it could mean more time for you but it might not be a great time for anyone involved and yeah the fact that that doesn't tie neatly into a bow I think is reflected in the book because the book 
doesn't really ever feel neat to me. It feels like you're in a fog for most of the time. I don't know. I've gone on and on and on there, and I don't have a question. Did did do you have anything to bounce back with there? Yeah, um, I actually have a question. Um, it's do you feel like when you're reading this book that, like, when you're really deep inside this book, do you feel like you're falling apart? <laughs> um, no, I don't think it got to me that much. It touched me at points, but like, I didn't feel like I was the guy crumbling. I wish I could say yes because I like it when books hurt you. <laughs>、um, but no, I can see how that might have happened to me if I'd been in the right frame of mind. But yeah, it felt like someone else's family, not mine. If that makes sense. Even though there are there have been in the last few years plenty difficult things going on in my family that aren't a million miles away from this, it just didn't hit me like that. Maybe I don't even know why it didn't hit me like that. Maybe it should have. What about you? Yeah, it hit me like that. <laughs> Mainly because、um, I currently do have a family member、um, and、uh, an uncle of mine. He's terminally sick, and our family is currently—they're、um, all back in Taiwan, and they're all kind of plunging into this kind of repetitiveness.、Um, especially now during the pandemic,、um, there are so many restrictions happening in the hospital, and that sometimes they allow the family to come in、um, all to visit. But then the next day, they would. They would put on a restriction and said even the general ward doesn't allow anyone else but like one family member to be there, and so also there's this repetitiveness of the pandemic itself, and then the illness that hap that happens to my uncle itself, that just brings everyone into endless repetitiveness. <laughs> yeah,、um, I'll stop being vague. One of the things going on in my family is is actually. Also, a terminally ill uncle, and I guess yeah, he's he's had this illness for so long. A little bit like this granddad in our novel, or like a character in a movie we're going to mention later. The end didn't come when we were told it would come. So there is that feeling of things being protracted, and I'm not the one who's managing it all. I'm I'm not in that generation. I'm just sort of an observer. But yeah, you feel like it's hard to remember which iteration of the dream you're in. Because it repeats so many times, and they're hard to distinguish. And the thing about I don't know if yeah, I guess you said your uncle's in Taiwan, so there's the confusing as aspect of、um, distance. And we were talking a bit before I hit record about travel in small and large countries.、Um, this uncle is relatively far south in England. Almost everyone in my family is up relatively far north in Scotland. So yeah, there's been not for me. I guess I'm lucky to say, but there's been backs and forth, back and forths on like、uh, five, six, seven-hour car journeys, and you know, phone calls. It's happened during a pandemic, which, depending on the illness, can be a particularly dangerous time,、uh, or you know, absurd time where it's like, why, why would these things compound on top of each other? And yeah, there's no reason. That's just life. Yeah, exactly, and also the dramas that comes with. This whole thing. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing about far away. The main character doesn't seem to be a guy who approaches all these things as a drama. I think that he has to get in. Like he does. I guess there's a few points where he does try and battle the circumstances, but that's not. It's not that sort of story. It's more like it just washes over you. And I know how that feels because some of the stuff going on, 
in my family I have taken a role this is not not the uncle but there's been stuff where I have stepped in and it does feel like I've stepped into a family like a tv show like a soap opera uh, and it's surreal because one minute yeah you're making choices in pivotal scenes and then other moments you're stuck in a car for two hours or you're riding the train for three hours and it's gray skies and all the dramas just sucked out and this book feels much more the latter than the former like the guy maybe i'm just projecting maybe i'm misremembering but like when the guy has to confront uh, say like a doctor that won't provide the right bed for his dying father he'll shove some money in the guy's pocket and he's like just going through the motions i guess that's because he's 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 from a much less corrupt country he's arrived in a much more corrupt part of mainland china so he's just playing what he thinks is the role how you're supposed to get things done in this different I guess, economy, um, but he's just performing a role and that feels somewhat relatable because it's in, I guess, all through life in a way, you, you could argue we're playing a role, but in these dire situations, it can feel even more like that. So. Yeah, I feel like reading through this whole book, I keep feeling like the protagonist, he's really clear about what to do. Um, like he's really clear about his objective and whenever there's a solution coming out, he'll He'll dig very deep into it and try to make anything happen, all doing everything to in order to achieve that that goal. And you can feel his determination, like very, like coming out really strongly from the pages and sentences. And at the same time, like I feel like again, it's so different from every family, and every family has its dynamic. And sometimes we cannot be that determined due to a lot of different reasons.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Sometimes being the dog that won't let go of the ball will cause huge amounts of damage. Sometimes you're the dog barking up the wrong tree.、Uh, I guess this applies to lots of things in life, where like you go in, you think I've I've done this anyway. I go in, I think I just need to grind or push really hard in this one area. Then that it'll be over quickly, mission accomplished. But sometimes no. So like this main character, sometimes you push and push and push and push, and nothing gives. And that's what most of the book is, and I didn't. I think I, I made it clear that it didn't make for the most enjoyable read, but it gives us something to talk about anyway. And on the slightly tangential note,、um, it also speaks about how convenient Taiwanese medical system is,、right. and how much,、um, like we don't have to pay for most of the things, including if a family member is terminally ill and they need a lot of care, like ICU care and. Other types of medical equipments, and there's a lot of take-home service from Taiwanese hospitals that you can apply for, and it's always paid by the government. And I remember when my maternal grandfather was terminally ill; he passed away when I was in high school. And I remember most of our families spent a lot of time in ICU to be with him,、um, taking turns and everything. But we ended up like when the bill came up after he passed away. Like what costs us more is is the funeral itself rather than the medical expenses.、Mm. Yeah, I guess that's one thing I can't grumble about living in the UK. The NHS is pretty good. I guess you do pay for it, but it's through taxes. So if something like that happens, you don't a massive bill doesn't ruin your your bank account for the next ten years. A thing that I, I never really figured out how to think about、um, living in China, I guess, because I was a foreigner with health insurance. But the 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 health, hospital system in mainland China is an interesting one because it's a you know self declared socialist communist country, which, as I understand it, had a much fuller social protections 
safety net benefit system when it was under its Maoist phase. Maybe that was a good thing about those times. And then when the markets and the system was sort of liberalized, the state was rolled back to some extent, lots of those protections were removed. And as, as I understand it, the Chinese system, the mainland Chinese system these days has a kind of a health insurance, but you do have to end up paying for stuff. So it's, um, I don't know, doesn't feel easy to make a blanket judgment about. And it's, a, I guess it is also reality that sometimes a country, whether or not a country has a full sort of uh, social system like that isn't to do with its ideology, but just is it rich enough to afford it? And I guess China in the 90s is not, not the most wealthy country don't really feel qualified to make a judgment about it, but it's it's an interesting window into, I guess, Law's experience of real, like a real life hospital in Jiangxi in 90s China. It's, it's a bit dire. The, like the One of the less, I guess it is a difficult thing in a hospital, but like the first thing I can remember off the top of my head is one of the elevators doesn't seem to ever work, but that's one of his smaller problems. Other more dangerous problems are like, popping up every chapter or every every few pages. Yeah, that actually reminds me of my family. Um, I have one cousin who back in Taiwan there was like a trend when I was uh, when I was really little that a lot of middle-aged men who are unmarried, they married a Chinese girl through some kind of agency. And so this agency would introduce one another. And then I remember some of my family members, they went to mainland China to pick up the bride. And they talk a lot about the difficulties making that trip. Um, and that was also during the pandemic. It was the very first SARS pandemic. Right. And my family members were there. And most of the time, like what people talk about is the transportation and how difficult it was to, to make a trip from one place to another. And I think that somehow got reflected a little bit in this book as well, um, especially from how much difficulty they have to weave through to actually get themselves an ambulance that will actually serve what their, their father needs and actually bring them back to Taiwan. And there's like so much petty little things they have to they have to go through in order to get what they actually need. Yeah, I remember um, without spoiling anything, when he's sort of near the end of the book, they're getting to some kind of a home stretch and the mission is get back to Taiwan. And we have exactly the kind of holdups you're talking about, about in an airport. And from what I remember, by that point, it just seems like a comedy. It's just so ridiculous, I guess. Yeah, I <laughs> it's, it's some light relief. Um, I don't remember exactly why it was ridiculous. Uh, I think there were like, it was two competing security guards or officials or something with different, wildly different approaches. That feels quite different from the the China I spent a few years working in, where the fast rail network had been built. If there wasn't a fast rail, there was usually a coach or a metro system you could get somewhere. The one bizarre travel incident I had was uh, getting a boat out of China. I went to go see. This is this is totally a tangent. It's nothing to do with this book. I went to uh, Dandong, which is on the border with North Korea. I wanted to have a look over the river. And then from there, I, I was on a holiday. So I to, to do another wacky thing, I got a, I bought a ticket on a boat from Dandong to Incheon to get to Seoul in Korea. And I was the only, I guess, white person because everyone else on the boat was Chinese or Korean. And the Chinese, um, I don't know what you'd call them, like the border, the guys who were checking passports um, 
were very puzzled as to why I was there. So I had to, this is the closest thing I had to a scary situation. It wasn't really scary. Um, if I hadn't had any, if I hadn't been able to say which school I was working at, then I might've been a bit screwed. But yeah, they were like, who are you? What are you doing? Um, where are you from? And I have, I had enough, enough Mandarin to say like, I'm from the UK. This is a UK passport. I work at Shanghai High School. I'm on holiday. Please let me get on the boat. But um, that's like in three and a half years. That's the only weird travel experience I really, I really had. It does, it does make me wonder a little bit about another thing in the story that's kind of there, um, but not. So, like as a as a foreigner in China, as a European in China, I was not like a a minority who was struggling to get things done. I was pretty privileged. They were v- people. I countless exceptions were made for me. Stuff was pretty easy. People were nice to me. It's not the easiest place to 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 like get about. Say if you if you're not fluent, but there's a lot of stuff in English. You know, it's pretty decent. Um, that positive treatment vastly outweighed the negative treatment. And then in this story, the narrator obviously he's not a white guy from Scotland, but he is Taiwanese, and everyone seems to know that. Or once they find out, they want to ask him. I think I remember he gets covered. He's covered in a local paper. They say something like Taiwanese comrade shows up to. Blah 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 blah. So there's all this weird stilted stuff that he encounters because of being something of an outsider, and yet also not an outsider. It's like a, a dual thing that I guess I didn't experience at all. Like, did you have any thoughts on that? Did it vibe with any experiences you've had? Yeah. Um. To mainlanders, it's really obvious. Um. Once we speak, right? Um, that we're Taiwanese because we tend, um, from my mainland friends' opinions, like. We kind of have this soft accent that's really easy to tell that we're not from the mainland, and so I believe like the protagonist probably attract the attention by ways of his ways of speaking, and people didn't notice him. And also like we have different pers- different perspectives about how things work, and so there's a lot of that. And as I read from this book, I feel like there's a lot of place.、Um, it's already a difficult situation where they need to. Retrieve their their father and bring bring him back to Taiwan. And just throughout those process, there are so many things that there's. I wouldn't say preconception, but just like the way we know how things work, um, because we're from a certain place, and and then these thoughts somehow direct him to do certain things. But but then he will find out that it doesn't really work where he was, and then and then there's just a lot of things, you know, like he has he really has to deal with. And that talks that speaks to how different、um, the system in Taiwan is, and how how different we think, even though we speak the same language and can understand each other. And meanwhile, there's a lot of dialects involved, like、um, like in the U.S. Like I I have Asian face, and everybody,、uh, a lot of people assume that I just speak Chinese, and a lot of them don't know that it's Chinese I speak is actually not the mainland. China's Chinese, and even mainlanders here in the U.S. Like when they see me,、um, even though like their main language to communicate with one another, sometimes in Chinatown or in other neighborhoods where there's a lot of Chinese people from different provinces, they communicate in dialects. And when they see me, they assume that I'm just one of them, and they would、mm. talk to me in dialects, and I would never understand what they're talking about. And I had this one incident where I was in a mall, and there were a couple of Chinese. People from a province—I don't know which one—but they spoke in a dialect, 
And then there's the cashier who didn't understand what they're talking about, and they also don't speak fluent Chinese,、uh, fluent English. And so both sides expect me to translate, but then I, I just don't understand that dialect. <laughs> yeah, that's rough. You you mentioned there were parts where we see just how different the thinking is between our, our narrator and some of the, the the people he's meeting, and the thing that sticks in my mind. Or maybe this is because I had some somewhat comparable conversations、um, during my time in China. Is where as soon as、um, the person he's chatting to, I guess yeah, hears his accent or finds out he's Taiwanese, they want to ask him some questions, not really directed to him as an individual, but like as a Taiwanese person, often about politics and、mm-hmm. like they're. Pretty okay with being blunt, but he knows he's got to do a bit of a dance about getting across his opinions or just having some kind of a meaningful conversation, but also not upsetting these these people who might either get mad at him or I don't know maybe be horrified to hear an opinion that they've never been exposed to before.、Um, I remember one there's with a soldier that I found kind of interesting, and I could vaguely relate. When my I was in that first year in China, that was just after the Scottish referendum, in the independence referendum, and I got quizzed about that quite a lot, and like didn't really know what to say because at the same time the protests in Hong Kong were going on, and I yeah I just didn't want to I didn't want to stir anything up, but yeah, can, have you been put on the spot like that at all? Very often, right.、Um, I think part of it is not because they want a conflict, but more like some people are just really enthusiastic about talking about politics,、mm. <laughs> and so and so they would bring all these things up. And I also don't want to bring anything that sparks anything, but just in general, like when I when I happen to be in a Chinese community where people talk a little bit or a lot about politics, they they really love like asking me what I think, but. I also relate to that feeling where I have to dance around because sometimes I don't know them, and I know I, I always know I need to find some kind of middle ground to talk about things, and also viewing how far away <laughs> mentally we're from、uh-huh. one another. Yeah, yeah, it's a tricky one because politics can be. I find it quite. I can talk about it for a long time. It's engaging. A lot. Not all. The issues imaginable. A lot of them, I feel, I care about to some extent, and a lot of other people out there do. But different points make different people blow up. Something I think is innocuous might drive another person crazy, and it's a guessing game as to what it might be. But you mentioned something important there. Just the word "far away" in the translation. That word, I guess, Jeremy, the translator, uses that word a few times, and it's not. I guess it's notable, and I wonder. If that's something we can talk about, I'm guessing that he's just directly translating、um, the Chinese, the Chinese,、um, which is what is it? It's、um, yeah, Yuan Fang. Yuan Fang. Yuan Fang. I. It's not. I know Fang. I don't know Yuan.、Um, can we say anything about either, either if there's any meaning in the Chinese that's not immediately apparent in the English, or just the importance of the repetition and dropping the title of the book in the book? Is there anything you want to say about that? Yeah, of course.、Um, the character Yuan、um, obviously means far away, and at the same time, Yuan is used in so many other occasions, such as you can say Yuan Jian, and Yuan Jian is like an ambition. Like, what's your vision about、um, something you would like to do in the future? And that Yuan somehow talks about 
it can talk about far away in the past and also far away in the future. And it has, it contains very different negative or positive meanings. And sometimes Yuan, it's also like the mental distance, like how close you are to this person or how, how little you know about this person. Mm. And then there's also the physical distance. And so it can be interpreted in so many layers, especially um, from this book. I feel like the far away is not just about, it's not just about like how far the trip was. It's also about probably how the protagonist feels about his father and about their memories together and about his father having this very first family from mainland China that he's estranged from. Mm. And now they're pulling the distance, close phys physical distance closer together in order to learn to make things happen, like to make things work. But then there's so many different kinds of distances um, existing between them, not just him and the family and also like him with mainland China itself and him with Taiwan while he was in China dealing with all these difficulties. And I think it's, it's just a really good title for this book because it speaks to so many different aspects of distances between humans and things and humans in between humans. Mm. The reason I was able to remember it's Yuan Feng is because I've got the tab open for uh, Luo's page on Paper Republic, which has the bilingual titles for, well, the Pinyin and the Hansa for most of his books. And then for Far Away, it's got the, the English title right there. But there's actually a mistake on the Paper Republic page. The name of the book, Far Away, has a space between far and away. But actually, Jeremy's translated the title as one word, far away, which to me is pretty smart because it could be an adjective, a faraway place, but it makes me feel it could be a sort of a noun for like a sort of a kind of fantastical world. I've gone to the land of far away where like it's a noun. And I wanted to ask, maybe this is a really, maybe I'm barking up the wrong tree here. Um, I know fang, like I associate fang with like defang, like a place. Would fang here mean that yuan fang could be an adjective as well as a noun or is that bullshit i feel like fun is also something that's worth interpreting in many ways like fun can be direction too hmm. like it can be directionless <laughs> even though i think it's more like my own interpretation right but i just think the two characters together um they bring so many layers together to this book and it's definitely worth like reflecting what they might indicate. And to me, I keep thinking about fun as some kind of direction or trying to find directions. <laughs> mm, yeah, um, I think this is again, type, typography. The um, On the Paper Republic page, all of the book titles are, sorry, all of the original language book titles are italicized. So like far away in English, that's not italic, but above it, uh, Yuan Fang in Pinyin, Fang, sorry, Yuan Fang in Pinyin and Hansa is, italicized so it's at a slant and i don't know if you feel this way whenever i see chinese characters italicized so they're leaning it always looks so bad it feels like they're being <laughs> bent out of shape but fang when it's leaning at that angle looks like it's pointing in a direction i guess even without that it seems seems to my eye to be sort of yeah pointing to the right so yeah that's a completely stupid point i guess i <laughs> i guess i should move to the next question yeah, so we, we talked a lot about uh, the, the writer's identity, his predicament, being Taiwanese on the mainland, 
we've compared it to quite a lot of our own experiences um something we didn't hit on yet is like who the narrator is i said before he seems to be kind of just it's kind of just Luo Yijun himself talking about a past experience so that to me raised the question like is this just a non-fiction like bio like a work of biography or creative non-fiction should it even be on this podcast which is the translated Chinese fiction podcast uh how, how do you feel about that or maybe I see it more as autobiographical fiction there's space um for for it to be a fiction and there's mm. also space for people to think that part of it might be a part of the author's reality. But then something is also fictionalized in order to bring some kind of emotions to people. And sometimes writing about these kind of stories can be painful. And so there's a lot. I feel like sometimes it's really heavy to just say like, this is nonfiction. And while sometimes like, especially this book touches on so much of stream of consciousness, like things that are going on in the pr- protagonist's mind, and also like the blending of reality and dreams. And so sometimes we don't know where we actually are in terms of mental space. And I think that's the very part that makes me feel like this is still fiction and probably autobiographical fiction. Mm, yeah, um, you're, you're right. A lot of it does feel kind of bizarre. And we're often going back into his memories or his imagination. And you're right, sometimes it's not clear what's what. And now that I think of it, like there are, scenes in the book which I think were things I liked the most where um, it feels more like a scene from like a weird novel or a art film or something like that. I remember there's a scene which could be kind of real where he's with his son. His son has shown has been brought over to spend time around the hospital and he's it's very bizarre because he seems like a guy who's very loyal to his wife and although he's often sort of glances at the women in town seems to not really care very much but he's spending an evening talking to this woman and we just don't know who she is um it's not really explained who she is and it looks like they might be about to have a fling and then nothing happens um i think one of them just wanders off and it feels that if that was anything linked to Loa's reality it, it's been turned into more like a, a scene and the, the stuff again not spoiling anything but there are some scenes also outside the hospital outside the mainland back on Taiwan involving a giraffe that really feel like an, an author's construction um I, I can't spoil what they are but I think it's notable to say on I I think that the main um edition the Taiwanese edition of the book there's a giraffe on the cover which must be really weird for readers who haven't got to the end of the book and they're like why is there a giraffe here but all of this is to say I felt the stuff that's kind of removed from the plot about his father, the stuff that's outside the hospital in the hotel or on the street, that felt to me more like scenes from a normal novel fiction. Whereas when we're dealing with the predicament in the hospital or traveling, I guess also the traveling and the meeting with the family members, that's where I felt he's maybe just going from his life and changing some names or something. But yeah, that's just my impression. That's not an attempt at making a deep point of any kind. Yeah, I find those blending of reality, dreams, and fantasies also kind of take me out of the predicament that they were going through. And sometimes I wonder why, like, is he actually there? Like, is this person actually in front of him? And especially, I, I totally relate to what you talk about, this woman who had conversations with him. And there's this feeling that he's in need of a person who can actually listen to him. 
but because he's isolated in China with his mother, and there's some distance between him and his mother as well. And so I feel like there's a lot he wanted to say, but couldn't say. And then later on, it kind of just being brought to this, this headspace of him that keeps having conversations and reflecting on things, especially about memories with his father and like his emotional state, like what he needs. And there's a lot, there's a constant search of what he actually needs and wants in his life. Yeah. I brought this up on the show, I think, before, but during the pandemic, I found that I was vanishing into my memories even more than I had been already. I think this was a problem. Starting this podcast caused a problem for me because um, I was, when I came back to my home country uh, after living in China for so long, I told myself a joke that, oh, I don't really want to leave, but this would be the sensible adult things to go home, try and get a career. But I'll just tell myself that I cloned myself and I left a clone in a cool part of Shanghai and he's still out there having fun. But I found, yeah, damn it, I I don't want to let go. I want to, I'll at least keep reading Chinese books. I'll start a show. And just when maybe I was coming back more to the reality on the ground, lockdown hit. And then I'm stuck in a house with just one person, my girlfriend, and the TV, the internet. I was working remotely, so work is all virtual, not happening in real space. And I found I was going back into lots of other memories. It was it was a way to entertain myself. Um, and it was a way, although this sounds completely um, deranged, it was a way to connect with other people through memories because I was, you know, the only other way to reach them was on a Zoom call or on a phone. Um, so yeah, I found that that happened in the isolated state I was in. The reality did become the physical reality didn't become more dreamy, but the reality of dreams and daydreams became more prescient, I think, because it was another way to get out, get out the house into some kind of space, even though it was an imaginary space. And I found now, even though the UK is not in full lockdown, I still work from home and I've moved to a small town where I don't know anyone apart from, in fact, I don't even know anyone in town because all my colleagues live in neighboring towns. So yeah, it's like this weird situation where I live with one other person. I work online with people. I sometimes talk to people for more than an hour at a time for a podcast. And yeah, it's like a very hard binary between that reality and not much else apart from the past and like fictions. So that and maybe it was a good time to read this book for that reason. Yeah, I totally agree. And I do relate um, to the fact that we're living more in our memories during this lockdown, pandemic, isolation. And I think in the past, because of a lot of in-person meetings we, we were able to have, and those meetings and, you know, like interactions physically really bring us into, into presence and a reality. And so it allows us to not dwell in our headspace for that long. And now that we're living in a different reality, like we tend to dwell in our headspace more and more. And because that's also some of the ways that we're able to connect with one another and, you know, think of something to say because there's no events going on outside. And yeah. No, you're totally right. Yeah. Um, I forget where I heard this, but I heard someone saying one problem or one thing that the pandemic is or lockdown does to our brains is yeah there's not there's no new memories to create which 
sounds like a, it sounds like the character in the film mental he, he can't create new memories thankfully none of us are stuck in 50 minute loops but again totally leaving this book behind and going on a tangent i think this is this this is pretty bad because although it's nice to revisit memories that would be locked away down some neural pathway that we hadn't got to before um we were already like the at least i think western culture pop culture is stuck in a state of nostalgia anyway like that recent spider-man movie as fun as fun as that looks that seems to be like such a demonstration of how what the what mainstream media does is sell your past sell nostalgia back to you um a book i read recently and another perfect one for the pandemic and not translated Chinese lit, but a book by a Chinese American author, um, Severance by Ling Ma, which I don't know if you've read that, but bloody, I, I became quite skeptical about um, books that would appear on lists as being Chinese when in fact they were written in English by people from the diaspora. That's very mean of me. It's not fair to stay away from them for that reason, but I have been on this silly mission for like two years now to read translated Chinese books. So I saw this book, Severance, I knew it would, I knew I'd like it, but I stayed away from it. But I finally picked it up and just what a perfect book for, for the pandemic and all these things I never would have expected that were so relevant. Like so much of it is a job, a book about having a, a job at an office during a pandemic, which is like where a lot of it's where I am right now. Like work is back on, but everything is still weird. But the thing, the reason I'm bringing it up is there is literally a, part of the book where a character is it's one of the less likable characters it's not the main character but it feels like it's just Ling Ma talking to us because the characters say something like all the internet does is feed the past back to us it's a big nostalgia machine but now that we're living in a post-apocalypse you've been given a blessing you've escaped the nostalgia machine and yeah we've (laughs) we've completely left far away far away uh, behind Uh, maybe we should get back to it but yeah um reflecting from on on nostalgia now is probably a good time to do it now that we're getting some distance from the the worst of the pandemic now that we can sort of look back on (laughs) if we can remember what we were doing stuck while we were stuck in our memories now might be a good time to sort of question these default responses i definitely had it was interesting at the time but maybe it was a problem i think it's also worth mentioning um part of the like the part of the nature of this book is to show the nature of the memory. Um, like you mentioned before that there are parts that seem untethered. And yeah. I think memories themselves are untethered because everyone remembers things very differently. And memories are the things that deeply connect with our emotions at a certain time. And the emotions we feel as we recall the story at present. And this is how I feel really strongly when I'm reading this book. And I think to Luo Yijun, um, memories take shape in words and also stream of consciousness. And while I was reading, I kept thinking about, you know, like how storytelling voice takes place in our brain and how we voice the story while we're reading and how they drift around and interact with our emotions. I think these are like some of the biggest takeaways after reading this book for me. Mm, yeah, um, I think one reason I found myself diving into my memory so much at that time was it's not a very efficient journey forcing yourself into your memories because they you just 
yeah, you can't, I, I find anyway, I can't hold on to them. Um, it's not like a video game where you have a 3D space to walk around. Like they just, they're like fog. So um, this is, this is really sad, but a thing I've done before to revisit places I liked um, is go through Google Street View or look at pictures. So like um, that's, yeah, depends where you're trying to get to. Some places aren't documented, but just looking at pictures of places where I'd, went, I'd been and I wasn't looking for like beautiful, aesthetically pleasing pictures, more ones that show you in clear detail, some street corner that I don't know, I crossed or that I um, drank a Coke on whilst exploring a new district in Shanghai, because the memories themselves are useless for exploring, um, what's the word, in a concrete way. They don't, they don't work like that, unless you are a lucid dreamer or something, but I'm not, it's just always frustrating. Um, I speaking, so speaking of how we've, we talked for quite a while about how dodgy and unhelpful nostalgia can be, but I want to talk about a film we both watched in the past recycle, recycle of viewing experience. Um, it's the farewell, because I guess on one hand, it's, you know, this is also a, a book that's about an old Chinese, or not a book, a film about an old Chinese person getting becoming unwell so of, there's like a really obvious connection to make there but just plot wise it's it's really quite similar the only big difference is rather than a taiwanese person coming to china it's a chinese american going going into china and from what i remember she's going to a small town she's not going to like inner guangzhou or something it's it's the suburbs i don't know if i have any very deep comparisons other than like I found the farewell easier to digest, but it's a movie. Movies are easier to digest than books anyway. Well, I guess the reason why it's probably easier to digest is because nobody passed away in the farewell, even mm. though there's a strong feeling that something might something was going, going to be lost. But then but then we ended at a point where there's a farewell happening, but it was not a permanent farewell. Um I guess like the movie itself leaves us in question, just like uh, what is it gonna happen later? And it's those uncertainty that we constantly question ourselves when we're in these kind of life events. And at the same time, it talks so much about the immigration immigrant family and how there's this feeling like when you see when after a long time you finally see your family from the the other side of the world. And then when you leave, like you start to think about like when when will be the next time I come back? Mm. And things seem to, the timeline seems to stretch and also things seem to be especially uncertain because of such a distance in that far away. Versus in far away, it's, there's like a clear answer that his dad is not going to be long. It's not going to be long that his dad is going to leave this world. And there's that. And so it kind of, makes a lot of things heavier because of that. And at the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty and already loss that's lingering in the air. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember reading this and keep thinking about like my own memories visiting my sick relatives and their sick beds. And just think about like what would happen when we're actually leaving that moment of silence, <laughs> like leaving the sick beds. And what is it gonna be like when we're not here anymore? Mm. what what you've made me think of there is i guess a big difference but or maybe it's not a huge difference but the characters in 
the farewell who've got to get themselves from somewhere in the US to somewhere in China, a huge journey. It's like most of the planet, I guess, or at least it's over the Pacific. And then the characters in Far Away who've got a relatively smaller distance, although like you were saying, kind of a ridiculously overcomplicated journey from just Taiwan to Guangxi, Jiangxi. And again, not to try and constantly insert myself into a story that's not really about someone like me, but this was something that was on my mind living in Shanghai or Zhejiang and Shanghai was that I did have relatives who were, you know, two generations above me, the granny and granddads who were, I guess, no, one actually did pass away while I was um, overseas, but I did see him not so long before, but, you know, there were, I still had most of them in my life. And in fact, two of them were the parents of my stepdad. So I had more than four. <laughs> yeah. Did I still have more than four? I did. I still had more than four, at least when I first left. But one reason I, it's not, it's not, it's just one of many reasons, but one reason I did come back was, yeah, the longer you're away, the more you're sort of I, powerless to, to, to be there. Not that, not that being there magically does anything, but it, it did kind of suck. I was aware, yeah, the more time you spend away, the more stuff like this will sort of accumulate. And you can either feel a relief that you're distant from it and it's, it's far away, it's out of your mind, or you can acknowledge it and, yeah, but yeah, the point I'm the point I'm finally getting to here is money factors into this because it's expensive to fly around the world. And the other part of that is you if you're abandoning post your posts, you know, your job or whatever your responsibility is to be overseas, then even if it's an important if you're doing an important thing like attending a funeral or a wedding or sorting someone's will in the world of work, that's a holiday that you're not being paid for. And I was lucky. I was a teacher. So I had a great big long summer holiday to catch up or yeah, no, a song, a long summer holiday and a long Chinese New Year holiday to catch up with everyone back in Scotland and still have a job. But and I guess the narrator, he's he's lucky, too, because he's an author and characters. Um, they do quiz him like, what the hell do you do with your life? And he's like, oh, yeah, I write books. And I think he he reflects on that. He's like what do I really do? My, like my, what are my books even about? Like, cause he's not writing straightforward genre fiction, like thrillers or romance novels. His books are also sort of like, what, what is this, <laughs> you know, or that's the impression I got from him describing his own works. Like even this stuff is sort of a strange fog that I can't hold on to. Who even am I? But yeah, getting back on point money, money is sort of the invisible gravity unless you're a, a, a bajillionaire and you can up sticks and fly around the world whenever you like, but not many of us can do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like there's a lot of winding around, um, even though the mission is so clear, but then just because of this, this unfamiliarity, um, not just between fam family members, but also like um, as much as a lot of people think that China and Taiwan, because we share the language that we're similar, but there's so much from different perceptions from both sides that are just drastically different that makes things so much so much more difficult. It's almost like just going to a new country um, and trying to adapt to the system and the way things work. Yeah, no, when things are superficially more similar, the difficulties are harder to unpick. Like this, again, 
I'm inserting myself in. It's not, it's not, not even close to the same. But like cultural differences, um, as a British person with a German person, you know, kind of what they are at least based on the stereotypes. Cultural differences with an American are like, I think there are obvious things like Americans are louder, but other stuff feels that little bit more frustrating because you've got like so much commonality, but um. Other things are unresolvable and invisible and unspoken. I guess maybe with China and Taiwan, it's not all that invisible. A lot of it's pretty damn obvious, like the political systems. But yeah, I think like what what do they call it? The um the narcissism of small differences. The smaller the differences are, the bigger and harder they are in some ways. Yeah, exactly. And also, I sense a lot of distrust.、Um, right. When. This protagonist was making his trip and all the way to you know like finally getting to see his father and finally getting to meet his other family and there's so much distrust in this like the way his other brothers take care of his dad and also the way the the hospital works and you know how they check their their father and how they do so many things there's so much distrust in this and I feel like whenever his distrust accumulates to a certain point he will start. Stuffing money, even though they are, you know, like routine, routinely he would still stuff money to those doctors to make things work better.、Um, right. And I kind of started to see this gesture as, you know, like the way the protagonist shows his emotion, like brimming to the edge of something, and I find that kind of interesting. Yeah. Again, trying to relate this, however futile that is, to my own experiences. Like I remember, there's parts of the books where he's getting frustrated because the sis the system stuff that is just built in are throwing up problems that he can't deal with. And I think, from what I remember, he becomes aware that he's judging the people that, like, he's getting pissed off. He's making it personal, and he's self aware enough to know he's from a country that doesn't suffer from this kind of backwardness. So it would be bad to. Go around in a in a huff like so many white expats do in China, hating every second. Oh, everything's so backwards. Blah 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 blah.、Um, I found that kind of relatable because I remember whenever some certain things didn't go my way, or I was having a bad day, or I was hit by some cultural difference. I'd have I remember having these nasty urges to judge the poor person behind the desk who's not sure what my problem is with buying a train ticket or something. I could kind of relate,、um, but yeah, like. I'm sure, for this guy in '90s Yangshi, it was not as not as comfortable and cozy as I had it. Like like I guess I or I said earlier.、Um, shall we go into?、Um, no, not go into. Shall we step a little further away from the book to talk about、um, like the experiences of of, of reading both、um, literature from these different areas and just reading in general? So, first question I had in this category was. And I think you kind of mentioned this at the start, but like, what's your experience of reading Taiwanese and Chinese lit from the mainland? Because、um, that's kind of a theme of the book, so it seems like not not a completely irrelevant topic. Like, what what in terms of your experience, like accessing the books, what's the differences? And then, as an experienced reader today, who's read, I guess, stuff from Taiwan, stuff from other. Chinese locales, maybe not even just the mainland. Like, do differences stick out to you? Yeah, a translator I really admire once told、oh, yeah. me that Chinese literature has more emphasis on plots and where the story goes. 
while Taiwanese literature focuses more on tone and style and the peculiarity that this author is trying to to do to manifest something in a book. And I completely agree. I feel like um, when I was, even though I didn't have that many opportunities to read literature from mainland due to political reasons, um, and especially since I was still back in Taiwan. And now that I have a different network in the US, I was able to have more access to Chinese literature from, you know, from mainland. And I was able to read a variety of works, especially like from Pathlight and from so many other literary magazines, even though they're translated. And sometimes I do get a chance to see the original. And it's not just the language for the characters. Um, there's a lot. I feel like the, the voice is also so different. I feel like a lot of Taiwanese literature books, they tend to drift into stream of consciousness. And sometimes we're in the author's head or sometimes we're in the character's head. And we're sort of being plunged and delve into those emotions to feel like what the characters feel or sometimes to feel what's coming up in the story versus um, the Chinese literature from mainland. They, they're very clear what's gonna happen next. And when there's suspense, there's suspense. And everything's clearer to me. And, and of course the landscape inside the stories are extremely different. And I feel like I, I'm finally able to see what's on the, side, the other side of the shore. Was it what you expected it to be? What's on the other side? I never really expect anything because whenever I read something, I just, I'm just having a mindset to explore and I'm open to any surprise in anything that comes up to my mind. And like, not trying to say anything cliche, but so many people talk about how, you know, literature is the way you travel when you cannot physically travel. And I think that's how, like, how I travel right now, now that we cannot really travel around the world. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Like I already said, the podcast is sort of a nostalgia, very selfish nostalgia project. I never, for example, I never visited very, very far northeast Dongbei. I mentioned I went to Dandong, I went to Shenyang, never went further northeast than that, but I've read one book for this podcast that's set right like on the Russian border like so yeah and I've through through reading Taiwanese lit I've I guess explored more of 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 Taiwan uh like the east coast and the south whereas all I ever saw was a few days in in Taipei which I got the sense isn't really representative of the rest of the island and like there's the occasional time where like I've I've um I finished a book that qualifies for this show and I think, oh, I could read anything else. I could read a book from any country in the world, <laughs> anywhere I'm interested in. Uh, and often it's like some author I already know from the US or the UK or somewhere. But like uh, some of the most fun I've had is reading like a French book or um, a Japanese book or something. Because yeah, you're right. It is like a passport. It's a passport in time as well. Like the Japanese books I've read in the last year or two, just just two of them, I think. One was I Am a Cat by, nope, I don't remember the author's name, but that one's from like, I think the late 1800s. And then the other one, No Longer Human, I think that's from like post like 70s or something, post-war Japan. And yeah, it was amazing. Both both like great, great books to read for a story and a plot, but yeah, like a trip to a particular place and time that 
wasn't somewhere I randomly selected, but somewhere I was genuinely interested in. That was cool. It's easy, like you said, easy to forget because it's so cliche, but some it's worth some cliches are stupid cliches. Other ones uh, have some, have some, uh, there's something real, real there and it's worth peeling back the, the default um, way of looking at it to properly experience whatever it was um, pointing to. God, I rambled on there for quite a while. Um, do you think this book, Far Away, is a pretty good represent, uh, representative uh, of Taiwanese lit, given that it's kind of dreamy and doesn't have a fixed plot? Yes, uh, right. 100% yes. And it's so much about the nostalgic tradition of writing back in Taiwan. And like when I was back in high school, we read a lot of personal essays from different authors and mostly authors who, who are immigrants from China to Taiwan right. from a while back. And there's so much about nostalgia in their personal essays or even short stories. It's always about one object or one moment in their life that they're trying to recall because, mm. of, because of certain things that happened. And I think this book has really made good use of that nostalgic element and threading them into a full novel. You're right. Yeah, I'd, I'd, yeah it's, it slipped my mind that there's one really easy answer for why is there so much nostalgic stuff from from Taiwan and then it's that maybe Taiwanese lit has some or that a particular generation of Taiwanese lit has something in common with my podcast it's written by a guy who's haunted by his memories of the mainland or 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 a woman not necessarily a guy like looking through the Taiwanese Taiwan season I did um the first book is the membranes I guess that's not nostalgic for anything but like it's the plot is hardly a normal plot not even close. Uh, and then there's Notes of a Crocodile, which probably doesn't really fit the mold we described, unless it's maybe nostalgia for being an undergraduate. Then it's Man with the Compound Eyes. I don't think that's nostalgic. But then the, well, the one after that is Taipei People uh, by, by Shen Yong. And like, that's the textbook, isn't it? That's all about missing that old life or yeah, missing a past life. And just like he said, a few of those characters in the short stories in that book are hung up on like, not just their old life, but like one event or one chapter in their life. So yeah, seems yeah. like you're on to something there, to say the least. I think people was part of our textbook, <laughs> for sure. And at the same time, um, I think the nostalgia, the sense of nostalgia really appears, especially when these authors are trying to build a sense of place. Um, in Far Away, at the very beginning, um, the very first chapter, it talks about like how that city in that neighborhood looks like. There's like an animal hospital and there's all these things that uh, the other pinpoints, like the breakfast shop, the Yonghe Doujiang and everything. It's exactly, there are so many places and neighborhoods in Taiwan right now that still looks like in, they're in their 90s. And I think the place that he described is part of them, even though I think there's changes going on around still. And also in Notes on Crocodile, they also, I also remember like, they, there's a really strong sense of place that brings mm. me back to nostalgia, even though it's like visiting like older neighborhood in Taiwan, and that brings back memories. Like, like in Taiwan, there's still um, like some kind of like grocery shop, like candy shops that sell really traditional candies or snacks that even my my mom and dad can recognize as what they had as kids, and that still exists. 
And I think it's those places that are still existing right now. And that appears in these stories that bring that bring the nostalgia back to us. Mm. And when one like a people split off into another territory from another, the separation can cause strange effects over time. Like this is a this is a silly example, but um a difference between US and American English is the word for like the what you put on a baby, uh, for like it's it's underwear, I guess. Um so in UK English, that's a nappy, and in US English, that's a diaper, which is a word you never see in modern UK English. No one says diaper unless they're quoting an American saying what we would say for the word nappy. But if you read um, Shakespeare, there's at least one Shakespeare play where the word diaper appears. And the reason it's there is because that's a word that survived in the US uh, when British people went over and then vanished over here, but it's been preserved in the US. And I I mean, maybe you wouldn't, maybe you could confirm or deny this rambling thought I'm throwing out, but like it doesn't seem implausible to think some some of the things that were taken over from the mainland, China, have survived on Taiwan but are gone on the mainland, besides like the Guomindang or something. It's a really good question. Um I haven't given it a thought. No, no. Yeah. Why why would you? Maybe there's maybe it's nothing. I mean everything changes. Not everything stays stays fixed anyway. Um I- I did have these moments when I was talking to my mainland friend and we talk about how different we use certain words like avocados, like they would say Guo, and we say Luoli. And we had so many grocery arguments where I asked her to pick up something and then she would pick up a different thing. And then I would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> and things such as butter, like they say Huang Yu and we say Nai Yu. Oh, and interesting. When I say can you grab me a nayo? They thought it was a cream. <laughs> I, yeah, um, there's some some things, some food words in US English seem completely insane to over here. Like the word, what is it? Like lots of the, the words for like cakes. Um, there's one. No, I can't remember. But I yeah, um, I guess that happens in the US and the UK too. But I guess the difference is probably those conversations occur more between mainland and Taiwanese people because of the proximity. Whereas like, I think most British people's um, contact with American English is through media, like TV films, where a lot of these stupid little minutia don't come up because why would you put it in a script? Um, I guess that's a difference. Especially between China and Taiwan, there are so many terms that you can just reverse it. And it means the same in, in China while for example, um, when we say a food is very authentic, we say dao di in Taiwan. But in China, they say di dao. But di dao <laughs> for is tunnel. And, and actually, like, both works. Like, I started to learn that when my, when my previous roommate was from China, who said, this is very di dao, it means very dao di. And I remember we came up with a lot of terms that work like this like you just have to reverse the characters and then they basically mean the same from different sides that's funny i wonder how many um there are that would be that would seem like a fun maybe these this exists if someone compiled like a dictionary of all these little quirks exactly that would be so much fun yeah um right i've got another question this is again not really connected with our book um 
although it does bring up the, the topic of life experience, that feels relevant. But the question is, has your reading and your life experience informed the work you do as a translator? That's a pretty open question. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. Um, I find in the past, I read a lot of books in Chinese. And now because I'm in the US and I'm working as a translator, as I read other people's translation, I find myself able to find so many words that I never know how to explain in English from other people's translation. Mm. So as simple as food, dishes, names, and also just like daily, daily things that appear in our, in our life. And at the same time, I live in a really big family. And so my dad's many sisters and brothers, which are my uncles and aunts, they have very different literary taste um, mm. when they read in Chinese and some of them read in English. And so they're them recommending books to me um, in terms of Taiwanese literature really inform me as what types of books address a certain audience. And that also got me to think about what kind of language I'm going to use when I translate different books um, into English. And it's mainly, there's a lot about like what my family is reading and what language they're using in Chinese. Maybe I'm thinking too much, but I often think about whenever I talk to them and sometimes they mix dialects. In my family, we speak Hakka. And when they mix Hakka into their Mandarin Chinese and talk to me, I would start thinking about like how I would translate this. <laughs> and, oh, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, and sometimes there are some authors who are also Hakka um, and that shows in their in their writing or that shows their background in some kind of stories they try to bring out. And I would think about, I would try to recall like how my family is speaking and what were my thoughts when I think about how to translate <laughs> and then try to bring that into my translation. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Like the, the written word, whether it's what you're, you're reading, what you're writing, I think can like feedback both ways with your, your spoken language. Like a thing I find quite interesting is how people communicate in emails, instant messages, posts online, and how those might be a closer reflection of how they speak than like if they were to sit down and write an essay or, or a story or something. It's, yeah, language is, um, if you, I guess it's like maths. If you find maths interesting, everyone else will find it boring, but you'll find a million things there. That's how I feel about words on a, on a page or being spoken. If you sit down and analyze them, um, they, you know, they can combine in so many different ways. And if, you're, if, you're, if your job is to think about these things, then it's not like you can escape it by living in the real world because we're humans. We're always using language. I feel like it must be a little bit like um, doing photography, either as a regular hobby or as an artist. It's not like you can escape from visual stuff because you've got eyes. It's, you're always going to, once you, I, I, I'm not as intense as I used to be, but I was pretty into photography for a while. And um, I found once I learned like this sort of aesthetics of how you can make things look on a 2D image, I was trying to sort of flatten things with my eyes. And once you find out how light works, you can sort of see it around you, like in the color of light from the sun or artificial light in your room. And I find I can't really unsee it. It's, um, it's reshaped the world. So I could imagine if being around people, especially a lot of bookish people, sounds like you're lucky enough to live in a family of readers. 
if you're around them and it's such a multilingual family when taken as a whole must be an excellent laboratory for you it's um it's also a lot of fun um just because how much my family also likes learning languages my dad used to go on business trip alone and he would visit Myanmar, Haiti in different places and then he would bring back books that helped that teaches us how to write their characters mm. especially mm. like in Myanmar's language and so we we always have this I don't know like this thing that we'll play around like we'll just bring back whatever books from a certain country and try to learn a language and try to listen to their podcast even though we understand nothing um, that's just kind of the, the weird thing my family likes to do and my cousin-in-law is from Korea and so because I used to babysit a little bit my my cousin um, my cousin's child basically well yeah there's too many terms to call different family members so I got confused um and so like and so I actually learned a little bit Korean from my niece <laughs> and there's a lot of that those kind of interactions between family and that somehow just makes me ponder about what languages mean in this family and for myself yeah the thing about the different writing systems that um that kind of vibes with me because you know being from almost as far west in Europe as you can go. I grew up pretty damn insulated from any other writing system. Uh, yeah, writing systems except the Latin alphabet. Um, like, yeah, maybe I, I guess my first exposure to anything that wasn't the alphabet as I knew it was a holiday to Greece as a kid because they had the, the Greek alphabet on some shops and stuff. And it's like, whoa, people use other alphabets? And then going off to China, it's like, this isn't even an alphabet. This is a different system. But then on top of that, it's not like Western Europe where all the neighboring countries are all using the Hansa. You don't have to go so far um, where you have different, all sorts of different writing systems. Like you said, could be like the countries in Southeast Asia where there's several different ones or other countries like Korea where I guess Hansa are or were a thing, but then there's an alphabet system there as well. And from my own experience as a guy in his 20s, I do think on some level, very, very slowly learning Hansa, I thought it would be really stressful and a nightmare. And I certainly didn't make fast progress, but there is something kind of like nice and quietly satisfying about absorbing them. I had, you maybe, maybe I've come across these. I had those little sheets where you trace, trace them with a pen where the ink fades yeah, and like a grid. Yeah. And I, again, I think it was a nostalgia trip. My first year back home, I would spend a few hours on the sofa, not a few hours, maybe a couple of hours on the sofa, listening to a podcast and just tracing them. And I expected to get bored in about 15 minutes, but I just kept going and going, probably only learned about and absorbed about three characters in that time, but it was an, it was a pleasing way to pass the time um so yeah i that was a very long way of saying i can i can relate there there's something not as stressful as you might think about writing systems that have pretty much no connection with your own yeah speaking about learning other languages and kind of like our impressions of how hard it is to learn them i remember when i was a high school student i used to commute from my town in taoyuan to taipei to learn french and spanish 
And so I would take the time during my commute to kind of like review um, what I learned from the last lesson. And I remember whenever like my friends came with me to Taipei and when they saw me reading in English, they're like, oh, she's reading English again. And whenever I read French or Spanish, they'll be like, what is she reading? It's probably a very difficult English. <laughs> and that's like our impression of it. And I remember when my mom, um, she, because of work, she had to learn French when I was a kid. And so she taught me a little bit of French. And then I remember as a kid, I was probably five years old or something. And I asked her like, why do you teach me English over again and tell me how it works differently? Because <laughs> hmm. back then, people only know English and they didn't know, like the existence of other languages isn't as oh, right. strong as English. <laughs> right. So that's like the, Euro the European language and the others are like an afterthought. Well, from an economic perspective, it's, that's kind of sensible. <laughs> Like, yeah. yeah, it's it's totally different. Like the this, this won't be interesting for anyone, um, anyone at all, probably. But like, just to just to last thing I could say on this topic is, yeah, the spectrum of language available in school when I was growing up was French and German, Spanish maybe if you're lucky, and then if you make it to the end of high school and more than five students are interested, one teacher could teach you Russian, and that was it. Um, but it was like Fre French and German were the biggies. And actually, this is kind of interesting. So I have a little sister. She's half my age right now. I'm 28. So mathematic geniuses will know how old she is. Um, but a few years ago, um, her the primary school she was at was thinking about adding a new language to the ones it was teaching. Because like in Scotland, I think in the last couple of years of primary school, when you're about 10, they start teaching you a language. And it's I think it's the same. It's like French or German, or maybe one of those plus Spanish, but they were considering to swap out one of those European languages with another one. And they had two main candidates and they were uh, Urdu, so like Pakistani yeah. and Mandarin. And there was two such different rationales. One is Chinese is going to be one of the big business languages of the future, could be the, the world government language of the future one day. Not really, but you know, it was, it's an up and coming language. And then Urdu, the rationale was some of the kids in uh, the classes will have parents who Urdu is their first language and it'll give you some common ground between those students and the rest of the class. And I think in the end, nothing changed. They didn't adopt either, but it was an interesting way of thinking about like the reasons to learn different languages that could be on the same branch of the family language tree as yours or could be other side of the tree like mandarin and english so yeah i i don't think i got any more interesting things to say on that topic anything else you want to add um i think it's fascinating like what the, the school teaches their kids if they have options to choose from foreign languages like for taiwan back then it's really uh, like we all learned english in since oh. elementary school and then after that maybe starting from junior high school, depending on schools that we go to, they offer French, Spanish, and German. Um, but then like people would talk about if they want to learn, for example, Spanish, like if they want to learn Castellano or Latin American Spanish and from which country they would like to learn from. And that's always the question. And we never really get to choose 
but later, like after we go abroad and study. Um, and we usually just start from, you know, like starting from Castellano. And then as we build the foundation for the language, then we start to branch out and start to learn different expressions. And I thought that was fascinating. And people used to say that which the language you choose also indicates part of your personality. Oh yeah, French and German are like binary opposites, stereotypes there. But um, I should say we didn't get a choice. Um, it just depended what class you were in. You got assigned one. So I actually had six mandatory years of learning German and somehow never ended up with a very useful level of it. It was mandatory in last year's primary school. In my school, but then in high school, there were kids who'd done none. So the next two years were like catch up for them, waste of time for me. And then we had the last two years, I was getting sick of it. Um, so yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't the dream of like total freedom of choice, unfortunately. But I think I was happier to have German than French. Maybe that says something about me. Actually, German was my very first second language. <laughs> oh yeah? Um, I remember my parents wanted me to learn for a language that is not English after I learned English. And I was leaning towards French and Spanish at that time, but then all the classes were full. So uh-huh. I eventually got German class because they told me like, if I don't take this class, it would be this class or nothing. And so I took that class and the teacher was very organized. And the way he taught, the way she taught really, really shaped the foundation of my, my proficiency with German. And then I kept going along and along. And then until that was when I was in high school, until I had to take entrance exams. And then eventually I was able to choose my major in college. And so that's when I took advantage. I was like, I already have, I I already know kind of, you know, how to speak German. And now I'm going to, to go for French. And then did four years of French. And then I met my partner at that time. And so I did French and Spanish at that time, and I got confused so much. <laughs> okay, I'm I'm quite impressed now. <laughs> You're definitely a linguist. Um, you should you should be awarded a medal or something. And I'm impressed that, or not impressed, but it's it's cool that you've zoomed in on not just one language for translation, but two, but also not the full set, not like all five or however many languages you've touched on. That that's cool as well. Okay, I should keep us moving um, onto the miscellaneous section. So the first miscellaneous question is, if we could pick a Chinese word of the day, uh, or Taiwanese perhaps, word of the day, uh, for the, the book, Far Away, what would you go for? I would say, it's a Chinese. Um, I would say, mm. and it means feeling emotional or sorrowful because of revisiting or seeing the same landscape somewhere now yeah ching i recognize that's like a feeling i think that was the word of the day for um membranes feeling or sentiment is that that's the same one right yeah it's the literal translation is basically like when you touch the landscape it evolves your sentimentality that's something i don't remember so much is like if there are descriptions of like the landscape landscape in in jiangxi there's definitely descriptions of the like the urban or suburban landscape that were pretty interesting it always felt I know like in in my head when I think of this novel I imagine like a misty like depopulated city like same same here right yeah because 
I mean, a, a stereotype of China is that it's always crowded. Um, I think that's, well, that can be true if you're in rush hour somewhere. But like a feeling I did get was nowhere tended to feel crowded, but there were always like two or three more pe times people on the street than there would be at home in, in Dundee where I'm from. So you never, it, I didn't often feel rammed or overwhelmed unless I was on the subway. Um, but I often didn't feel that, like when I went back home for the first time to Dundee, I was like, damn, this is like a post-apocalypse. There's, I'm in a big park walking my dog and there's like one other person on the other side of the park. Um, so yeah, I don't know why I'm going on at length about this, but it did feel that we were in a sparse landscape in the book, maybe a bit like a Chinese landscape painting. The um, I, yeah, I don't know the term for them ones, but you know the the black and white ink ones with a tiny person, a dot on a big mountainscape or something. Shan right? Yeah, yeah. Not yeah. I don't think I was thinking of Shan Shui. I know that one, but yeah, like where there might be a forest or yeah. a mountain. I think we call that Shui Mo Hua. It's like it's painted by ink, so. That's what makes it black and white. And then they often paint like natural landscapes. Yeah, the book felt a little bit like that. Although I feel like the black ink wouldn't be so black. It would be more gray. I agree. Yeah, it's funny how we both know exactly what we're talking about there. Uh -oh. Okay, next miscellaneous question. It's the, the music. Uh, if you could pick a song to pair with this, uh, whether if it was for a soundtrack in a movie or something to listen to when reading the book. Do you have something you'd jump to? Yeah, it occurs to me right away that it's going to be Cai Qing's Bei Yi Wang Um in, in English, it's going to be The Forgotten Time. And it's one of the okay. most classical and most nostalgic songs ever. And it's still being played so widely back in Taiwan, whenever, sometimes in a movie, and sometimes you just happen to hear it on the street. Hmm. I highly recommend checking it out. <laughs> um, well, I, I could I could give it a brief listen, just like 30 seconds. Do you have a link you could throw me? Yes. I'll throw you the title first and then Brilliant. I'll just stick that into YouTube, I guess. It should come up. That's the thing I like about YouTube. It's it's uh it's not Anglos not completely Anglocentric and it's quite good for searching Chinese stuff. Yeah, this sounds like good music to what's the word visualize a very worn out person the end of a hard day there's so much like emotional resonance just with the lyrics and i feel like even if we don't understand the lyrics there's like something in her voice that really conveys the feeling that's that's a lovely one i'm gonna fire one back at you there's i have a link right here so i think i just picked this one because it's got far away in the title, but it's also reflective and peaceful. I, and it sounds kind of worn out. So it's by a metal band, but it's an acoustic version. 
and it's chill. I think I've listened to this one after long hard days as well. Be Quiet and Drive, Far Away, Acoustic by Deftones. Yeah, I checked that out before we do this episode. It's a pretty good song. Yeah, it's. I think it's definitely the, the acoustics better than the original. I, probably one of the ones like where if you hear it played in a bar or on the radio, it's probably this version, not, not the original. And then there's this other song. Oh, brilliant. Um, the f- it's called Olive Tree, and it's the first three characters. And the later characters is the singer's name. Is this the song? It's written by Sun Mao, actually. Sun Mao, that's, yeah. This one's, I, this one's come up on the show before. Yeah, this is especially, like... My sister and I would start singing it when somebody keep asking us where we come from and we get tired of that question. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's it. Hadn't occurred to me, but yeah, this she she is one of the um, Taiwanese off the first Taiwanese off I covered on the show. The I guess all of her works do sort of have something in common with Far Away. Um, yeah. She's obviously much further away. She's in Africa. Yeah, but I guess it's you know away. The point is you're away from home. You're a stranger in a strange land. Yeah, I think also like that song reson- resonates with me so much. Just like. People tend to put labels on people from all parts of a culture, like stereotypes and so many other things. And sometimes we grow tired having to explain where we come from. And so this song, there's like one line that really says like, don't ask me where I come from. I just come from Mm -hmm. far away. (laughs) Yeah, this I should have asked more questions to you about America because I kept saying, like, did you have an experience relating to the mainland about this but that's not where you are right now you're in the states so like did this our our narrator being in Jiangxi could you relate to that being yourself in the USA um I think that's a whole different story because at least like in Jiangxi um the narrator is able to speak in he's with his family and he's able to speak in Mandarin Chinese if he if he needs um versus I'm in America, even though I do speak English fluently, there's like this whole, you know, like Western and Eastern thing that are so different that mm. without getting to know the culture, like now we do have like Netflix series and so many programs we can watch to get to know the culture before we even get there. So I feel like because of those 
you know, like social media and whatever media we're watching that really helps me adapt to the culture. Um, so it's not as difficult as I imagined before, but there's still challenges existing because of how, how different people tend to work on things and make them work. Yeah, I think I mentioned this or hinted at it before, but like we all sort of live in America because in one form or another, we consume pop culture from there. But actual talking to dealing with American people in real life or visiting America, it's nothing, it's kind of like the movies, but also nothing like it because there's all these tiny little things you wouldn't think of. My um, dad's, so I mentioned that I have like step, step parts of my family on both sides are step family and my dad's uh, wife um, is American so um, she's my step mom not my step mom and um, that means we've visited the part of the states she's from a couple times and like one thing that should I should have seen it coming but I was a wee kid and this stuff doesn't come up in the films is that like the consumer culture meant that everywhere you went people like selling you your sandwich or your chewing gum were always seemed to be very smiley and eager to please. There was that. And also the other thing I noticed as a boy is you got free refills everywhere for your soda, like your, your Coca-Cola. And um, yeah, like it's not a shocking, crazy thing, but it's something that doesn't come up in the movies or the TV shows. I think I think taught me more about Americans was podcasts because they're real people talking about their real lives. But like, yeah, the cultural differences are all the things you don't see coming, not the things that you know about in advance, in my experience. Yeah, there's still a lot of things we cannot just, you know, like just find them in social media or TV programs. Because um, there's there are things that are inherent that we cannot, sometimes they are sh- being shown, but we can't, we don't notice them because we don't know that's that belongs to that part of culture until we actually immerse ourselves in that culture and listen to people talk about it and inter- and interact with it. Do you do you find like if someone asks you um, some sort of where are you from or please explain Taiwan to me type question, do you find you've got like a default answer? Because like I know I definitely had a few default answers about Scotland. I guess maybe because Scotland is, it has something in common with Taiwan that it doesn't fit, it does and doesn't fit the traditional definition of a country. And there are short and long ways to explain that to people from outside. Um, yes, I do have a default answer. I just say I'm Taiwanese and it's not Thailand in Southeast Asia. <laughs> it's also not China. But this might be political, politically controversial. And But I'm from the island and I'm from Taiwan. I think it's very controversial that you'd say it's not Thailand. That's shocking. Because so many people, like people either think we're from China or from Thailand. (laughs) And I've had a lot of travels in the airports when I used to travel around a lot. And so when I checked in at a counter um, at a time, like sometimes, you know, like online check-in doesn't work or they don't have Taiwan. (laughs) So I have really, I really have to go to the counter uh, in person and then talk to them. And they would try to, you know, like, look at my passport and then they'll, they'll be like, what do you mean Republic of China is not China? And then I'll be like, trust me, <laughs> oh. it's different roles and different passports. Yeah, I hadn't, I, I had only thought of that problem in the context of like Taiwanese friends 
telling me or mainland Chinese friends telling me about this that like if you're Taiwanese going into mainland China then you have the problem of like what is you need to get the special document what is your passport yeah. blah, blah, blah. I had not thought of it in the context of other countries but now that you say it of course that becomes an annoying problem that yeah. like I like as much as I find it interesting to compare Scotland with uh, with I almost said Thailand with Taiwan uh, this stuff is not an issue for me um, if Scotland is listed in like a drop down list on like choose your country then that's nice for me but if it's not there it causes no problems because the, my passport is unambiguously a UK passport and whether I like that or not that makes things easy it's not ambiguous or confusing or the I mean it is a political Scotland as a nation is technically a political question but not like the bureaucracy of it is not an issue I suppose it would become one if Scotland became independent because all the doc oh, you know all the bureaucracy would have to be reset but as it stands like I have nothing comparable to that kind of nightmare <laughs> sounds like a nightmare honestly sounds really annoying yeah it's really about like what these passports are able to do and so if if I were really to fill in China like people would try to go for like the way they check the passport will be like another way and right. so that won't be ideal and it's the same for you know like applying for a visa and stuff like that as much as i said the scotland england thing didn't screw me over it has recently with vaccine jabs jab one i got in scotland jab two i got in england and the computer systems don't talk to each other so yeah i can't get my booster because the english system doesn't think i got jab number one but yeah, as far as travel is concerned, no, no issues. I guess we could probably, I could quiz you about passports forever and ever, but I don't want to put you through that. You probably have had enough of that in the real world. Um, so I'll ask the next miscellaneous question. This is a bonus one. This is getting snipped out of the main episode and going on to Patreon, um, which is no biggie because it's a silly question. And that is, if you were going, going to write a novel that's a little bit like Far Away about someone stuck, whether it's you or someone else, being stuck somewhere in the PRC or somewhere in mainland China in a different time, uh, where would you choose and and when? So would we go for 90s Jiangxi or something totally different? I think that's all I can squeeze out of the bonus question. Um, right, so further reading questions. Uh, if people want to read more books like Far Away, where would you direct them? And there's no, don't feel obliged to stick to like translated English books. I'll probably be able to think of something off the top of my head. <laughs> so it could be from English, could be from Chinese, could be from Spanish. All doors are open here. So what, what would you go for? Um, the first several authors I think about, um, they haven't been translated. Um, there are Jin Zhen and Qi Jun from Taiwan. And Qi Jun is one of the immigrants like who moved from China to Taiwan. And I think so is Jen Jen. And they're both amazing Taiwanese women writers who write about memories. And especially they write about it very vividly as if we're there. And I would recommend their works. And most of their works are also, you know, like in shorter forms. So it's really easy to get into and, and then find like a longer work from them. And they're still, um, especially Jen Jen, she's still writing. Um, to this day. And for more books that might be similar, I would recommend people to, to visit Bokalai and a slight bookstore to, to find books 
even just you know like put Deutsch and then they'll have like other recommendations. And awesome. when I was a student, I also read um this newspaper still exists. Um, it's called United United Literature. Um, in Chinese it's Lianhe Bao Wenshui, and it's on the side of the daily newspapers that we get every day. So so there's that as well. Awesome. Um, I'll edit this bit out. Do you have Do you have those in text form? Could you? Um, I do have um the link to Bookalai and Chunping, the two bookstores online. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I don't have access for the Lianhebao Wenshu because they're uh, usually printed. Yeah. So I will put links in the show notes for all listeners who want to check out those authors and uh, those websites. Um. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Jenna, for recommending those. Um, I'm struggling to think of any books that are really close match for this one, but one translated Chinese book I've read did have that kind of sparse feeling that I we were trying to describe earlier, the feeling of living in a depopulated world, even though it's not. It's just like the modern day. And it's um, 1988, I Want to Talk to the World by Han Han. And it's Plot-wise, character-wise, it's nothing like Far Away, really. Um, it follows a guy who's, if you if you know anything about Han Han, he's kind of like a author behaving badly. Like, he um, he's an, a naughty boy who got famous writing books about naughty young men being naughty young men. Um, but 1988 is a nice, it's not, it's not, um, what am I trying to say? It feels a lot more mature than that reputation. It seems to be from the perspective of a guy who's lived a wild life, but is becoming reflective and the plot is it's like a road trip basically he has an encounter with uh, a sex worker i guess who's from a an underclass in whatever town he's drifting through and he's just trying to get from somewhere in his old car his 1988 whatever it is car and he takes her along with him and most of the book is just them having a chat yeah so it's really nothing like far away but that vibe of sort of being in transit um, being nowhere or being in a world where everyone is faded into the background is there. Yeah, there's a podcast I've been listening to, nothing to do with um, if, with literature at all. But one of the hosts had an interesting point. He was talking about how um, when you are like riding in a train or traveling, you're you're nowhere. You're um, you're in a non place looking from the outside. And although far away, our guy is not in a in a in a train carriage or a car. It has a similar feeling, like he's in non-places, hospitals, um, hotels, these like places that you're not, that are supposed to be like places for stopping and in between, and he's stuck there, I guess, like in a limbo. So yeah, um, all this is to say that book 1988 has a bit of a limbo feel to it. And I'm repeating myself, so I'll stop there. Um, The next question is, what are we reading just now? Uh, Jenna, what's on your not your bookshelf. What's off your bookshelf? What right now? What, what are you reading? Um, I've been reading other Li Chao's trilogy. It's called Han Ye in Chinese, and I noticed that it was actually translated into English years ago by oh, right. by Tao Tao and John Balcom, and it was actually published by Columbia University Press. Um, the English title is Wintry Night. Um, and I'm reading that in Chinese right now um, because this book was the very first Hakka TV shows ever in Taiwan. It was really popular among 
you know, like Hakka population and older generations, but younger generation also also watch them. And so it has been quite a discussion and the soundtracks from that show it has been really popular ever since, especially when whenever, you know, like discussions about Hakka culture and how to preserve them, it's up on the surface and we always talk about those songs. I'm also reading a short story collection called Happy Stories Mostly by Norman Erickson Pasaribum. I'm sorry if I mispronounced them and it's translated by Tiffany Tao. And the story really fascinates me. I I read them earlier, just, you know, like one story or two, and now I'm delving into the entire story collections, which is, it, it really hooks me. Is that um, a book published by Tilted Axis? Yes, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I was, I forget if I was saying this before or after I hit record, but I was saying this, the publisher of Faraway Columbia University Press is an interesting, or they're a, publi- they're a publisher of, for an academic publisher, I think they're quite interesting and they publish an interesting selection of books. And Tilted Axis are similar, I guess. They've only got the one translated from Chinese book out so far, Yanga's Strange Beasts of China, but they have an Asian focus. So listeners of the show might be interested about that. I, I forget if it's strictly lit from Asia they do or if that's the main focus, but not a strict focus. And then the other focus they have, which is... It's definitely not strict. They have a lot of. They, I think they have quite a lot of female authors and translators in the, in their in their list. So yeah, um, as I guess as well as the book you named, just that publisher in general are pretty interesting, and their covers are always beautiful. They have like a great combo of a standardized design, but also individual art for every cover. And although I only have one of their books, I like seeing the pictures on their Instagram of their covers because I'm shallow. I agree. I love their covers. <laughs> I think that that is all. Is there anything at all we've missed that you'd like to get out there on the air? Um, I've had a really great conversation and so happy to be on this show with you. Do you want to direct listeners to anywhere like where they can find more about you th- the things you do, your work, your translations? Um, would you like to give them anywhere to look? Uh, sure. I do have a personal website and it's pretty direct, jennating.com. There, perfect. Okay, so if you want to know more about what Jenna gets up to um, with with lit and language, it's all there on jennatang.com. How wrong can you go? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for talking about a book that I think is kind of difficult to talk about because, you know, like we said, no conventional plot, not so many things to hook on to. But yeah, it was great having you on the show. And of course, you're welcome back anytime. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. And It's so nice to talk to you today. And we have reached the end of the show. So thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Jenna for joining me for that interview. That was, I think, a hard book for me to talk about, but we certainly wrangled something out there. Uh, I hope you listeners got something out of our conversation. And I do hope you check out the book because it is certainly really interesting. And I'm sure it is up many of your uh, collective alleyways. That sounded a bit wrong, didn't it? Getting back to what sounds right, the right thing to end a show with is plugs. So the Twitter account that you can follow if you want to, I guess, keep a pace of what I'm up to, to do with Chinese Lit, or occasionally something from my working life, which is a whole other ball game. <laughs> but yeah, you can keep a pace with me about all that stuff 
at, at Angus Likes Words. You can follow the show itself on Instagram at, at Church of Flick, T-R-C-H-F-I-C. We have a Discord. It is admittedly a quiet Discord, but you can follow it or you can join it rather with an invite link in the show notes. The show has a Patreon. Um, the bonus question from this episode and preliminary and after reading thoughts on all the any kind of China, Chinese or Chinese adjacent lit I read will go up on there, usually in 30-minute-ish clips, sometimes a bit less. Bonus question answers are obviously shorter. Um, I suppose that's not obvious, is it, necessarily? Those tend to be like 5-10 minutes, uh, thereabouts. But yeah, there there's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of episodes up there on the Patreon, and they've all got lovely art, by the way, very worth checking out. Uh, you can join from 1USD and up, easy peasy. And you can cancel whenever you like. You could, as I said last episode, sign up for one month, download everything, run away. And I'd still be one dollar better off. So who's the real winner there? Speculation about winners and losers aside, I guess I'll just lay out the one single most important thing you can do for the show. um, And that is tell people, be it through a review of the show on your favorite podcast provider, five stars, please. You could just tell people in real life as well, uh, or via social media in virtual life. It's all good. Uh, So please do tell the doctor that you're bribing, tell the parent that you're taking care for, and tell your memories of your younger self. Send a message back through time to ensure that you do actually listen to the show and, you know, complete the the loop in time. Because if you don't, then everything will unravel and nobody wants that. So until next episode, it's Aichiya.